Well, good morning, Grace family. It is hard to believe it's been a little over a year since COVID came on the scene and changed so much of our world. And last year at this time, we were not able to meet all together to celebrate Holy Week. But here we are a year later. And God is alive and well and has definitely been at work among us all along. So much has been unearthed over this past year, hasn't it? And we've all been learning a lot about ourselves over this time, haven't we? And maybe we've seen some cracks that have been exposed here and there, things that we didn't see too clearly before, we see with a bit more clarity now. But we've also seen some amazing things, a beautiful strength, stability, resiliency, generosity in the midst of the storm. Honestly, I am so encouraged by so many things that I am witnessing right now, and I'm so grateful to God for his faithful provision to us. He has protected us in so many ways through this year, and to see his handiwork in that way has been such a blessing to me. So today marks the beginning of Holy Week, and today we commemorate Palm Sunday. And this coming Friday, we will observe Good Friday. And of course, next Sunday, we will celebrate our risen Lord at our Easter services. And I want to provide you just a few details on all that. For our Good Friday service, we will be meeting out on our patio this Friday at 5 p.m. And it will be an hour-long service. And it will be just a time of solemn worship and reflection remembering the great sacrifice Jesus made for us on the cross. Childcare will be provided for children under five, and so we really hope that you can join us for that. And for Easter this year, we will be having three services, the first at 8 a.m. and then 9.30, and our third service will start at 11 o'clock. So keep in mind, these are different times than our usual schedule, so please take note of that. And because we have a limited capacity out on our patio, we ask that you please register for the service that you will be attending. That way we can manage attendance and you can be assured you'll have a seat. So please help us out by remembering to sign up for a spot when you receive the registration notification in your inbox or text message. As it's the start of Holy Week, my encouragement to you is to see this week not just as a calendar notation, but as an opportunity, a chance to walk with the church throughout time and throughout the world as she walks with her bridegroom through the most important week in the history of the world, a chance to focus your mind and affections on the most profound and important of realities. So I encourage you to consider how you might make the most of this week a week that looks back to some of the darkest and brightest days in the history of the world, but days that are rich with life-giving and life-clarifying vision. Holy Week is a reminder to pause and ponder, to carefully mark each day and uh, not let this greatest of all weeks fly by us like every other week. And we have two opportunities that we think will help in that regard. One is we hope that you will consider engaging 
this week, and that is a set of daily scripture readings that we have provided for you, passages that you can meditate on, immerse yourself in, and feed on throughout the week. And second, we have an opportunity to pray by participating in a 24-7 prayer initiative, joining other churches across our city to pray every hour from now until Easter. And you can sign up to pray during a specific hour of your choice and, and be a part of a beautiful expression of the church coming together to partner in prayer. And you can sign up for both of these opportunities by clicking the link in the email that came with this video. And one other announcement I just want to make you aware of, and that is our welcoming of Brian Lucas onto our elder board. Lots of prayer and deliberation went into our decision to add Brian to, to our group, and we are grateful for so many of you who joined us in prayer and offered your feedback. And today at our in-person gathering, we will be commissioning Brian for his coming term in this role. And we ask that you join us in praying that God will use Brian and his wife, Melanie, to serve this church with faithfulness and wisdom. And we also ask that you pray for protection for them, as this job can be challenging. The stakes are high. Our accountability as elders before the Lord is high. And our spiritual adversary, the devil, would like nothing more than to disrupt, discourage, and disqualify any of us in this role. So we always need your prayer. So please join me in welcoming Brian to this role. Now let's turn our attention to God's word as I read for us Matthew's account of Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem, a day with anticipation and expectation, the coming of the king. I'll be reading from Matthew 21, 1 through 17. As they approached Jerusalem and came to the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus entered the temple area and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of thieves. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. 
But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Did you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read? From the lips of children and infants, you have adorned praise. And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany, where he spent the night.
So for Palm Sunday, we'll be looking at the parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25, 31 through 46. So join along with me. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did, did not do for one of the least of these you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Well, today we bring this series on the kingdom officially to a close. We'll actually continue the kingdom theme into Easter week, but this really formally completes this series on the kingdom. And so on Palm Sunday, I want to do what we often do on Palm Sunday as a way of wrapping up this series is to simply say to you guys, behold your king. I want us to see the kind of king Jesus is one more time and what his kingdom is all about. We're going to get a very consistent picture of Jesus and his kingdom, both in the Palm Sunday reading and in chapter 25, which we'll look at in a second. So first, let's look at the events of that first Palm Sunday. And um, what, what strikes me always about Palm Sunday is this interesting dynamic between the, the excitement and the, the majesty of the moment, and yet the humility uh, and the loneliness that Jesus presents in himself as the lowly king. So first, you obviously have the excitement. Here's Jesus. Finally, the king is, is riding into the capital city. His disciples are with him, and the crowds are there. They are cheering him on. They're putting their cloaks on the ground. They're waving palm branches, and they're crying out these beautiful things like, Hosanna, which means, Lord, save now. Uh, blessed is the king, the son of David. The, he, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. All these, these words have very messianic overtones. And Jesus is not denying any of it. Because it's all true. That is who he is. He is the coming king, coming to the capital city. And yet in the midst of this, Jesus performs this very subversive, symbolic act in choosing to ride in on a donkey instead of a horse. And he's doing that in fulfillment of Zechariah 9. 
but he's presenting himself as a very particular kind of king. Uh, Martin Luther puts it perfectly. He says this, he rides no stallion, which is a war animal, and he comes not with fearful pomp and power, but sits on a donkey, which is no war animal, but which is ready for burdens of work that will help human beings. So here is Jesus presenting himself as the lowly king, as the servant king, as the king who has come to bear the burdens of our sin by going to the cross and dying for our forgiveness. And then, of course, he moves into the temple area. You have the second scene where, again, you see his authority and power and majesty on the on display as he cleanses the temple courts, as he overturns the money changers' tables. And I would say maybe this is the most authoritative act Jesus ever performs in his public ministry. It's, it's certainly his most physically aggressive act. But here we have the new temple of God coming to replace the old temple of God because he is now the place where God's presence dwells. He is the place where we receive forgiveness of sins. And so he replaces that whole old temple system. So we see his authority and his glory and his majesty here. But what's so great is we see him exercising that authority on behalf of the lowly, of the poor, of the needy, right? So in verses 12 through 13, he sees this whole commercial enterprise happening in God's temple. People, you know, making profit off of, off of the needy. And he, he just turns the whole thing. He cleanses the whole place. And what he does is he makes room for, in verse 14, the blind and the lame. And they come and he heals them. And then in verse 15 through 17, the religious leaders are complaining that little children are crying out Hosanna about Jesus. And Jesus says, hey, let the little children come to me. So you have the religious elite of the day complaining and Jesus siding with little children. So all that to say, Palm Sunday, we have the king in his glory and his majesty. And yet here he is siding with the lame and little children. So I say to you, behold your king, his power, his authority, but behold also the lowly king, the servant king, the king who exercises his authority on behalf of the poor and the needy. This is our king and this is the kingdom of God. It is the poor in spirit kingdom that we've been looking at all year long. Okay, now let's turn to chapter 25, uh, the final passage in this series, and we end where we began. I don't know if you remember this, but the first week of the year, Todd Pickett preached on this very passage. And what I want to point out today is what makes this scene so powerful is, again, that same dynamic that we saw at Palm Sunday between Jesus' majesty and yet humility. And and, in this scene, that dynamic is like the volume is turned up all the way. So first, of course, we look at the scene and there's majesty and power and authority. I mean, everything about the scene is big. This is the, the final judgment. So let me just point some of this out. In verse 31, Jesus mentions the word glory twice. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and sits on his glorious throne, that word has a sense of weightiness and splendor. There's a radiance, there's a weightiness to, to what Jesus' second coming will be like. And there are glorious names given to to the king. He's referred to as the son of man, to the king, to the Lord. This is now the, the cosmic king, the Lord of all the universe. 
And the scope of this passage is so big, right? It says, um, he will come and all his angels will come with him. So now we're finding out there are these, there's this whole other world of spiritual beings. And when the king returns, these spiritual beings will be present. All of them will be there to witness this final scene. And it is a scene where verse 32 says, all the nations will be gathered for this moment. So every human being from every tribe and language and nation will be there for this cosmic moment. And as Jesus describes it, this will be the grand cosmic separation where the king now acts as judge and he separates people, right? Separates what he calls the the sheep from the goats. But this is the king exercising his authority as judge. And what's clear in this passage is that people, humans, are no longer making decisions. The time for human decision is over. Now decisions are being made for people by the king, by the judge. And there are these two big cosmic fates that await people. One uh, is a fate that is beautiful and glorious. We, We see it in verse 34. Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. What a great image that for all eternity, God has been planning and preparing this great kingdom for his children. So it's this beautiful and glorious fate. But then, of course, there is another fate that is, frankly, terrifying. Verse 41, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. All that to say, this is a cosmic scene. It is awesome. It is awful in the sense of filling us with awe. It's not a secret or subtle moment. This is the king coming in his glory to judge every soul. So in light of all of that glory, all of that majesty and authority, it's remarkable to me where the focus actually lands in this passage. This whole cosmic scene focuses in on these very small, lowly, insignificant people that Jesus describes as the hungry, the thirsty, the stranger, those needing clothes, the sick, and the imprisoned. And it focuses in on those people because this king of glory identifies with those lowly people, right? He says in the scene, I was hungry. I was thirsty. I was a stranger. I was in prison. Everyone would look at him and say, no, you weren't. You're the king. You're the king of glory. But he says, yes, but whatever you did to the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did to me. This is this this beautiful truth that is really communicated throughout the New Testament, that the king of glory He identifies so much with his lowly people so that he can say, whatever you did to them, you were doing to me. And we see this theme uh, throughout the New Testament. I mean, we have this wonderful metaphor for the church, for God's people as the body of Christ, right? He identifies so much with us now that we can be said to be his very body. I love how Ephesians 5 puts it. It says this, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. Why? Because we are members of his body. 
that is a beautiful picture where Paul is basically saying, in caring for us, which Jesus does, he's just, he's caring for himself because we are his very body, because Jesus identifies so closely with his people. And he especially, I think, identifies with his people when they are in times of need and vulnerability and want. And I love, there's another passage uh, in Acts 9, um, this famous passage, which is Saul's conversion. And of course, the context is Saul has been going around uh, taking Christians and imprisoning them, even trying to get them killed for their faith. And he has this encounter with the Lord on the road to Damascus, right? This bright light, he sees the Lord of glory. And what does the Lord of glory say to Saul? He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saying, I'm persecuting these needy, broken people. You are persecuting me because I identify so closely with my people. So it's this beautiful picture of of a Lord who is majestic and glorious, and yet he identifies with his people, especially in moments of lowliness and need. Okay, now one clarification, which you may have picked up while I'm talking, and this may be a new thought to you, but I do not think in this passage that Jesus is, when he's talking about the poor and the hungry and the naked in prison, I don't think he's just talking about the poor in general or the hungry in general or those in prison in general. I think he's talking about believers, followers of him, who find themselves in those states. And there's a lot of reasons why I think that. Okay, first verse 40, when he says, whatever you did uh, for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. That phrase, brothers and sisters, every other time that phrase is used by Jesus in the gospel, he is referring to believers. He's referring to people who are part of his family, right? His disciples, those who do the will of his father in heaven. And I think that's exactly what he's referring to here. Even that phrase, the least of these, every time that's used uh, in the gospel, it's also referring to believers. And then another thing that's very convincing to me is the parallels between this passage and Matthew 10. So we won't go there, but let me just share. Matthew 10 is when Jesus sends out his disciples into the surrounding villages to go and preach the gospel. And really the parallels there are so remarkable to this passage. He sends them out. He says, I'm sending you out um, without any money. You won't have a bag for food or for drink, so they're going to be hungry and thirsty. Uh, He says, I don't want you to take any extra clothing with you, so they're going to be in need of clothing. Uh, They have no place to stay. They're requiring someone to uh, offer hospitality for, for a place to stay. And he says that they would often get arrested and imprisoned for what they're doing. And he ends that passage by saying, whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. So there's so many parallels. And as we look at the book of Acts and the early church, we see that's exactly what happened. We see Christians being persecuted. We see missionaries going out and subjecting themselves to these kinds of lowly states. And so what I think Jesus is doing here is he's portraying himself as the king of glory who is identifying with his faithful people in their vulnerability and in their need for the sake of the gospel. So that what that would mean then is that the litmus test on the final judgment for eternal salvation or eternal damnation, the litmus test is not just how did you treat the poor in general, okay? It's not just, you know, when you saw that person on the street and they asked you for for a meal, did you provide a meal? Or did you have a ministry to refugees? Did you have a ministry to the prison population in general? 
Okay, now those are certainly really good things to do, and we should absolutely care for the poor in general, and there's plenty of verses to tell us that we ought to do that. But I think what we're finding out here is that the litmus test at the final judgment is, is not the poor in general, but it's essentially this, did you embrace my people? And did you embrace the gospel message that they brought you? Because embracing them and in embracing them in their need and embracing the message they brought, you were embracing me and you were embracing my kingdom because it is, it is a poor in spirit kingdom. It is a kingdom for the vulnerable. And so it is our receiving of these kinds of people that really shows whether or not we actually believe in the gospel, whether we actually belong to God's kingdom or not. And let me just say, in some ways, this is such an encouraging passage. I mean, it's a scary passage, but there's something very encouraging about it. In Jesus' identification with his people, whenever we, as we try to follow Jesus, whenever we find ourselves in time of, of deep need and brokenness and humility, and we have this, this king who, who reigns over the universe, and yet he's so with us in those moments. He absolutely identifies with us. He empathizes with us and identifies with us, and that's such an encouragement. And the other thing that is then, it's this great motivation to be looking for others who are in need, right? Who are in those, those states and ask, how can I step in and help and love and serve? And in doing that, I have this remarkable opportunity to actually serve my Lord. Like when I see a need in a fellow believer who's in this place and I can reach out and serve them, it's not that I'm just blessing them, but they they get to bless me because I get to see Jesus in them because he identifies so clearly with them in their need. So this becomes an opportunity for me to actually experience Jesus. I love this story I heard. There's a president of a Christian college who's going to begin a prison ministry. And the first day he arrived, the, the prison chaplain, who was a really wise man, took him aside and said this. He said, don't forget, you didn't come just to bring Jesus to these guys. You came to find Jesus in these guys. And really, that is, that's the privilege of serving those who are broken and needy. We, we actually get to experience Jesus through them as he identifies with his people. All right, I know there's so much more we could talk about in this passage, but uh, I think that's it for today. So I, I just wanna step back for a minute and just think about the last three months and think about our king and all the teachings we've heard about his kingdom. And I just wanna put some things on the screen for a second, just to reflect together. Just think about this. His teaching on the kingdom began in Matthew 5, Sermon Mount with these words. This is his opening salvo about the kingdom. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And today we see now he ends in a very similar way. And really this, this is Matthew's last words on Jesus teaching on the kingdom. He, he wants to leave us with these. But it ends the way it began. Here we have this call to embrace the hungry, the thirsty, the stranger, the naked, the sick, and the imprisoned. So take the beginning and the end together, and you see exactly what Todd Pickett said the first week. This is God's kingdom, his poor in spirit kingdom. 
And that kingdom contrasts with another final judgment scene we saw at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, where these people come before the Lord on that final day and they say things like this, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? People who had these dynamic, spectacular, visible ministries. And Jesus just doesn't seem very interested in any of that. He's interested in these simple, unseen, if I can call them small ministries of providing food and drink to people, of clothing people, of giving people a place to say, stay, of visiting hurting people, whether they're sick or in prison. And really, we end on that to, to recognize to be kingdom people is to engage in these very simple lives of faith, of love, of sacrifice, and service. So different from the kingdoms of this world. And so we're left with this basic question. Is, is my life caught up in the comfort and the ease and the wealth and the status and the spectacle of the kingdoms of the world? Or is my life about these simple, faithful, costly acts of love and service to others? So on Palm Sunday, I say one last time, behold your king. We celebrate this king who is the king of glory, but who's also the lowly king who comes to serve and to die for his people. And I leave you with the words of our king. If anyone would come after me, you must deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. And I would add, for all eternity. Amen.
Well, we hope you've been encouraged today by the message, and we encourage you to keep the conversation going by engaging the discussion questions immediately following this video. Let us leave you with this benediction. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen.